Galatians chapter 2, starting in verse 1. Paul continues to write, Then, after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along with me. I went up because of a revelation and set before them, though privately before those who seemed influential, the gospel that I proclaim among the Gentiles in order to make sure I was not running or had not run in vain. But even Titus, who was with me, was not forced to be circumcised, though he was a Greek. Yet because of false brothers secretly brought in who slipped in to spy out our freedom that we have in Christ, Jesus, so that they might bring us into slavery. To them we did not yield in submission, even for a moment, so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. And from those who seem to be influential, what they were makes no difference to me. God shows no partiality. Those, I say, who seemed influential added nothing to me. On the contrary, when they saw that I had been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been entrusted with the gospel to the circumcised, for he who worked through Peter for his apostolic ministry to the circumcised, worked also through me for mine to the Gentiles. And when James and Cephas and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that was given to me, they gave the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and me, that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. Only they asked us to remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do. Okay. So here we are, Galatians chapter 2, um, chugging along. We're one-sixth of the way through the book. Uh, going to be a little bit further along as we finish this passage here. Um, I don't pretend that this is going to take longer than probably 20 or so lessons, give or take. But So here we are, chapter 2, and, and what we saw last time, just a, a refresher, because it's been a couple of weeks, what we saw last time, Paul is here, identif- uh, is, I should say, defending his ministry. He's defending his person, his ministry. He's giving his testimony, if you will, to the churches in Galatia. So there's a several, you know, there's a group of at least four churches that were started in four different cities in the region of Galatia. Uh, there may be more house churches and such, but he planted four churches in that region. And he's writing to them because, as we saw in verse 6 of chapter 1, they were so quickly deserting him who called them according to the grace of Christ. So he had preached the gospel to them, they had believed, and then there were some who almost feels like immediately after Paul left sort of infiltrated the church and began teaching a false gospel, a non-gospel, because there is no other gospel, as Paul elaborates in verses 6 through 9. So Paul is writing to them to warn them, and he warns them sternly, Uh, about this because uh, this is an issue of vital importance for the health and life of the church and the believer. Uh, We can differ on a lot of things. We can differ on a lot of secondary issues. We can differ on issues of conscience, but we cannot uh, ever differ on the gospel. The gospel is a non-negotiable. And Paul is very um, zealous here. I can't think of another word. He's eager, zealous. He's He's very, uh, he, he just comes right out and, and, and says, I'm astonished, I'm shocked that you are so quickly deserting. Now, not only are they deserting the gospel, it almost seems like they're deserting Paul, Paul who planted these churches. 
and, and these false brothers, these troublers are coming in, and they are sort of um, talking about how Paul's ministry is not a true ministry. Why? Because, as we're going to see, it doesn't, it doesn't originate from the three, you know, the pillars of the church that you see in chapter 2. It didn't, he didn't get his gospel from, from Jerusalem. Paul, Paul got his gospel, as we saw here, by a revelation of Jesus Christ on the road to Damascus. So these troublers coming in, they're more than likely coming from Jerusalem, they are saying, well, Paul, does not, he was not approved by Peter, James, and John, the pillars of the church. So Paul is going to defend his ministry, that his ministry is also a calling. That's what you see in verses 13 through 24, what we saw last time. Uh, Paul says, look, you know my life. You know what I was like. You know that I was a persecutor of the church. You know that I was a, a strict Pharisee and that, and that I was very zealous for the law of God. And, and then how all of a sudden I was on the road and then I had a sort of a close encounter of the Jesus kind and it knocked me off my donkey. And I was blinded for a moment. And then, and then I, was, I, I heard the voice of the Lord calling me to minister to the Gentiles. And he says, when, I, when that happened, I didn't immediately go up to Jerusalem. I, I, I spent some time in Arabia, and then I went to Damascus, and I began preaching there. I began ministering there. And then it was only after three years later, he says, then I went up, uh, and, and that we looked at that. That's a visit that Paul makes uh, somewhere in Acts chapter 9, like the later verses of Acts chapter 9. Paul does make a visit to Jerusalem. And he said, I visited there with, with Peter, at Cephas, and I was there for a couple of weeks, uh, but I didn't see any other people, except maybe James. Uh, and then he says, then I went back home. Uh, the only thing that they were saying was that uh, he heard that the one who used to persecute us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy it, and they glorified God because of it. So Paul is defending his ministry. He is talking about his call. He's talking about what happened. And now we're going to see another visit to Jerusalem that he talks about here in this passage where he talks about 14 years later. We'll get into that because there's some debate on what that means in, ref, in rel, uh, relative to everything else going on here and what the chronology you see in the book of Acts, how that flows. But he's going to talk about a visit that he makes to Jerusalem, another one. And he's going to talk about how he met with the pillars of the church, Peter, James, and John, and how when he met with them, and he revealed the gospel that he proclaims among the Gentiles. He's gonna, we're going to find out that Peter, James, and John added nothing to it. The gospel that was given to, to Paul was the same gospel that was given to Peter, James, and John. The only difference is the focus of their ministry. Peter, James, and John were called to minister to the Jewish population in Jerusalem. Paul was called to minister to the Gentiles in the, in the outer regions of the empire. So what we're going to see then as we go through this passage here is that the true gospel confirms Christians, it rejects errors, and it promotes fellowship. The true gospel confirms Christians, rejects errors, and promotes fellowship. And those are the three points you have in your outline there. So we have uh, confirming the gospel, verses 1 through 3, unyielding to error, verses 4 through 5, and fellowship in the gospel, verses 6 through 10. So here we see in verses 1 through 3, confirming the gospel. So Paul again writes, Then after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along with me. That's going to be important because Titus is a Gentile. 
I went up because of a revelation and set before them, Peter, James, and John, though privately before those who seemed influential, the gospel that I proclaimed among the Gentiles in order to make sure I was not running or had not run in vain. But even Titus, who was with me, was not forced to be circumcised, though he was a Greek. So Paul is continuing his sort of autobiographical uh, account here in Galatians. You know, the first, you know, the, uh, the last half of chapter 1, the first half of chapter 2, is sort of like an autobiographical sketch of Paul's ministry uh, in the gospel leading up to this point that he writes this letter. So here he continues this Uh, autobiographical sketch in verses 1 through 10 of chapter 2. And and, and again, the main point, starting in chapter 1, verse 10, going all the way to the end of chapter 2, really, is a defense. Paul is making a defense of his ministry, that he is a true apostle called by God to preach the gospel, and that his gospel is also given by revelation of God. He's not preaching another gospel. He is preaching the true gospel. And we'll get to that gospel message uh, probably, if not next week, certainly in two weeks, when you get to the, you know, sort of like chapter 2, verse 15 and following. He really then starts to talk about the content of the gospel there, and then he explains uh, the, the, what it means in their lives in chapters 3 and 4, and so on and so forth. But this is really a defense of his ministry and a defense of his gospel. Uh, again, he's very zealous here to, to pursue and defend the purity of the gospel message. He, he, you know, we've seen his ministry in other letters. We've seen it in Romans. We've seen it in 1 Corinthians, how um, he will speak boldly on certain things. But, but you know, he also talks about Christian liberty. He also talks about showing grace. He shock, talks about... Uh, um, you know, being kind toward the weaker brother. But here, this is, again, this is the gospel. This is the, the center of the bullseye, if you will, of our faith. And he's like, no, uh, you know, sort of like Gandalf, when he's on the bridge with the Balrog, he says, you shall not pass, right? There, there is no negotiating this part of the gospel. He stands firm. He's very zealous to defend this against false gospels, of which, the, really, when he says false gospels, he means things that are not the gospel. Right? You know, he says that in chapter 1, verse 6, 7, and 8. There is no other gospel. There's just the gospel, and then there's distortions and perversions of it. And also against false brothers. He's going to talk about false brothers in a little bit here. Now he continues again in verse 1 here, saying, After 14 years, I went up to Jerusalem. Now we, we need to uh, understand this a little bit, because the, the question really becomes... When you look at verse 18, he says, Then after three years I went up to Jerusalem. And then again in chapter 2, verse 1, he says, Then after 14 years I went up again to Jerusalem. Is it 3 plus 14? Or is the 3 included in the 14? That is the big debate. Because depending on how you reconcile that will depend on whether you're talking about his second visit to Jerusalem or more than likely his third visit to Jerusalem, which is the Jerusalem Council in Acts chapter 15. So I'm, I'm going to look at uh, Acts, if you will. We're going to be flipping back and forth to Acts every now and then uh, this morning. So go to Acts chapter 11.
So again, just the, corral, the, the, the context here in Acts chapter, we know Paul's calling was in chapter 9. We know also in chapter 9 he went up to Jerusalem and then went back to Antioch. And then, and then in chapters 10 and 11, Paul is sort of off doing his thing. We don't hear about him too much. And then the focus goes back to Peter, where Peter goes to Cornelius' house and preaches the gospel there. And then in chapter 11, he's talking to the brothers and he kind of relays everything that happened in chapter 10. And then you get to chapter, uh, the end of chapter 11, it goes back to the church in Antioch. But starting in verse 27 of chapter 11, we see now in these days, prophets came down from Jerusalem. That's just, you know, I always like that language going up to Jerusalem, going down. Jerusalem was on a hill, like a mountain. So you always went up to Jerusalem. And when you're leaving Jerusalem, you always go down to wherever it is you're going. So don't think it was like he's going south. We think of going down as south. We think of going up as north. He's talking about they came down from the hill of Jerusalem. They came to Antioch. And one of them, named Agabus, who was a prophet, stood up and foretold by the Spirit that there would be a great famine over all the world. This took place in the days of Claudius. So the disciples determined, everyone according to his ability, to send relief to the brothers living in Judea. And they did so, sending it to the elders by the hand of Barnabas and Saul. So that's Paul's second visit. Now his third visit, we know, happens in chapter 15 of Acts. Now chapter 15 occurs after Paul's first missionary trip, after Paul had already planted those churches in Galatia. He's in, now you see in chapter 15, verses 1 and following, But some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them, Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders about this question. So being sent on their way by the church, they passed through both Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles and brought great joy to all the brothers. And when they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they declared all that God had done with them, so on and so forth. So that's his third visit, the Jerusalem visit. So which is it? Is it after 14 years plus the three? Is it after 14 years including the three? Well, scholars are split. They, they, they are split on this. Um, so again, it, it really does depend on what that after 14 years means. Is it after his conversion or after his second visit? Now, I believe, but I'm, 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 I will not die on this hill. Okay? <laughs> this is not central to the gospel. It, it does not affect the meaning of how we interpret Galatians. But I think the majority report, or at least a, a good number of people believe, and I, I'm, I'm with them, uh, that Paul here means 14 years after his conversion. So it's inclusive of the three years. So it's 14 years total, not 17 years. So I believe that this is talking about his second uh, visit to Jerusalem that we saw in Acts chapter 11. Uh, it kind of fits in where he says we went up by uh, revelation. Uh, you can refer to that as the prophet Agabus coming and saying there's going to be a famine that was given to him by the Spirit, and because of that, that motivated Paul and Barnabas to take relief to Jerusalem. So that brought them to Jerusalem, in which then they met with the, the, the apostles there. Now, I say that 
because when you, even as I read through this passage, there's a lot of stuff in here that kind of sounds like the Jerusalem Council, right? There's, you know, it's talking about uh, dissension, it's talking about division and, and circumcision being added and all these things, and, and it sounds like, you know, it could have been the Jerusalem Council, but, and this is the argument I think makes the best sense if, if, if this is referring to the Jerusalem Council in Acts chapter 15, what was the product of that council? Do you remember that and how, how it goes in Acts chapter 15? They came to a decision, and then they wrote a letter, right? And they wrote a letter, and then that letter was to be distributed. Basically, it's sort of like, this is what we have discovered, this is what we have determined, and now we're letting the churches know. So if this is after Acts chapter 15, and Paul's talking about that visit, then it would make sense that if he's talking about not adding circumcision, he could just say, look, this is what the church decided. I can just point to this, this document, this letter that we have from Paul and Peter and James and John and the rest that says, you don't need to be circumcised. That would end the debate. And then Galatians probably would not have needed to have been written. That's my argument. Um, so I, I hold that this is his second visit. This is his famine relief visit, if you will, that we see in Acts chapter 11. Again, not dogmatic about this. Uh, you check with me on Wednesday, I may have changed my mind. Okay. Um, but it doesn't change the doctrine of the book. It doesn't change the interpretation of the book. He goes up to Jerusalem. Now, Paul mentions Barnabas. Uh, we know Barnabas also throughout the book of Acts. We see him in Acts chapter 4. Uh, he's introduced there. He's described as a son of encouragement. Uh, Acts chapter 4, 36. Uh, then Joseph, who is called, also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement. He was a Levite, so he's, he's, a, he's definitely a, a member of the tribe of Levi. I don't know if he was actually a Levite serving in the temple. Uh, he was a native of Cyprus. So he is, he is a Jew living outside of Jerusalem. He is a member of the tribe of Levi. Uh, we see him again in Acts chapter 9, 27. He's the one who goes and uh, when Paul is there in um, Jerusalem, uh, and when he had come to Jerusalem, Paul, uh, he attempted to join the disciples, and they were all afraid of him, of course. Why not? For they did not believe that he was a disciple. But Barnabas, verse 27, took him, and brought him to the apostles and declared to them how the, on the road he had seen the Lord who had spoke to him and how at Damascus he had preached boldly in the name of Jesus. So there's that son of encouragement uh, talking there. Uh, chapter 11, verse 22, we already saw that. He was in the church of Antioch and he went with Paul and his visit there. Um, we see him, I mean, he's, he goes with Paul on his first missionary journey in Acts chapter 13 and 14. And then there's a, there's a very kind of disappointing moment at the end of Acts chapter 15, after the council, um, Paul and Barnabas are deciding to go on another missionary journey to kind of encourage the churches that they, they, um, that they started. And Barnabas's cousin, I believe is his cousin, um, uh, John Mark, come, he says, hey, John Mark wants to come along. Now, John Mark was on the first trip, and he bailed partway through the first trip. So Paul's like, I don't want John Mark. I can't trust this guy. I don't know if he's going to continue on the trip with us. And Barnabas, of course, being the son of encouragement, says, well, then I'll take John Mark with me, and I'll go off, and, and you can kind of do your own thing. So they kind of have a little bit of a difference of opinion here over John Mark. Now, interestingly enough, Paul will come to 
trust John Mark later. You see this in 2 Timothy. He, he asked that John Mark be brought to him. Um, but, you know, that's the last you see of, of Barnabas in the book of Acts. But Barnabas is this son of encouragement. And he also brings Titus, who, of course, as we said, is a Gentile. Now, Titus, um, you don't see him in the book of Acts, but uh, obviously there's a book named after him because Paul wrote a letter to him. And in Titus chapter 1, verse 4, he calls Titus my true child in a common faith. So Titus, a lot like Timothy. Now, Timothy is kind of a weird animal because he's, he's, he has a Gentile father but a Jewish mother. Okay, So in some circles, that technically means you could qualify to be a Jew as long as you were circumcised if your mother was a Jew. Titus was pure Gentile, but Titus and Timothy were two very, very close associates of Paul. And so Paul is on his way to, Galate, uh, to, to Jerusalem, and he's taking Barnabas and Titus along with him. And as I said, he goes up because of a revelation. Um, you could say that's the revelation that Agabus gives of the, the famine that's coming. It could, it could also very well have been a, an explicit word from God to Paul to go to Jerusalem. But the point of the visit here ends up as Paul goes to Jerusalem, he meets with uh, Peter, James, and John. He doesn't mention them yet here. He just says, I met privately with those who seemed influential. He says this several times in this passage. And the reason why he's going to say it, so I'll, I'll show my hand here. The reason why he says it is because these troublers that came from Jerusalem to the churches in Galatia and were troubling the churches there were saying that Paul is not preaching the same gospel as Peter, James, and John. So they, they are the... the they are sort of like the, the hierarchy of the church. They are the pillars. They're the ones holding it up. So, so Paul is not uh, in, in line with them. And, and Paul will say, here's, look, look, they seemed influential. Uh, what they are makes no difference to me. God shows no part. Now, he's not dissing them, okay? He's just saying, look, you know, they're called to be apostles. I'm called to be an apostle. We're both all serving the same Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. They're not special in the sense that they're better, they're more worthy, they're, 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 they're like popes, if you will, or bishops. They're, they are men called. And Paul is making that point. It's like, I'm not disrespecting them, I'm just saying, look, God shows no partiality. It doesn't matter if it's Peter, James, or John. And we're going to see that in the next passage where Paul is going to, he's going to tell Peter off to his face. It's like, I don't care if you're Peter. I don't care if you're the one that, that you know, was the spokesman for the twelve. You're wrong, and I'm pointing that out to you. We'll see that next time, Lord willing. Um, but anyway, so he goes there, and the visit ends up confirming the gospel that Paul had already labored 14 years proclaiming. Paul shares his gospel to them. They hear what he is saying. They hear what he is preaching, and, and they add nothing to it. They, they, they confirm him in the gospel, which is wonderful, of course. And um, th now this idea of running in vain, uh, it, it wasn't that Paul was concerned that he was wrong, okay? Uh, some take that. It's like, I, I wanted to check with them to make sure that I had the gospel right. Paul's like, no, I have the gospel right. Why? Because it was given to me by revelation of Jesus Christ himself. That's why I know I have the gospel right. He's like, I want to make sure that we are preaching the same thing so that we're not running in vain. In other words, because if, if, if Peter, James, and John 
confirmed that you needed circumcision, and Paul is saying you don't, what is that going to ha- What's that going to do to the church? It's going to split it right down the middle between Jew and Gentile. And, and Paul's like, look, if, if that's the case, I'm running in vain because, because you don't want to split the church. He was concerned that it might spark a church split over Jewish and Gentile converts. Now again, why is this important? Well, it's important because as Paul continues his ministry, who is coming to faith more, Jews or Gentiles? Gentiles by a large margin. Now, even though Paul's called the apostle to the Gentiles, every time he goes into a new city, what does he do? Well, he goes to the synagogue. If they have a synagogue, he goes there first. He even says in the book of Romans, the gospel is the power of God to salvation to the Jew first and to the Greek or the Gentile. So he goes to the Jews to proclaim the gospel to them. More often than not, he gets some people, some interest, a lot of rejection, and then he goes to the Gentiles. And then when he goes to the Gentiles, that stirs up even more hatred against him and oftentimes ends up pushing him to the next town. But Paul, you know, this, 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 the, the, the problem then is, what do you do with the Gentile converts? Is this gospel a Jewish thing? Is it a Gentile thing? Or is it something that transcends both Jew and Gentile? Well, it is something that's going to transcend ethnic nationalities here. As we find out, because it says here, even Titus, who was with me, was not forced to be circumcised, though he was a Greek. That's big. That's a big thing, because what the, what the I'm going to call them the Jerusalem Three, okay? That sounds like a, they're like a gang or something, but Peter, James, and John, I'm just going to call them the Jerusalem Three. Them not imposing circumcision is huge, because it means that the gospel is of grace alone. You don't have to do something in order to come to Christ. You just accept it by faith. And that first point went longer than I expected. So, got to put it up into third gear now. Okay. Unyielding to error. Unyielding to error. Verses 4 and 5. So, despite the confirmation of the gospel uh, between Paul and the Jerusalem 3, there was still some trouble in verses 4 and 5. Yet, because the false brothers secretly brought in, who slipped in to spy out our freedom that we have in Christ Jesus, so that they might uh, bring us into uh, slavery... To them we did not yield in submission even for a moment, so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. Now Paul here mentions some false brothers who are secretly brought in, and that kind of uh, highlights a principle that we see highlighted in Scripture. We're going to look at some passages in a moment, but error or heresy does not always and does not often come boldly through the front door, okay? Error usually sneaks in through the back door, subtly. Um, because if it, was, if it was too apparent that it was error, we would reject it. Uh, if it's subtle, then it kind of can creep in. So, uh, again, um, bear with me, but we're going to look at a few passages here. Acts chapter 20, uh, starting in verse 28. This is Paul uh, later, uh, ending his third missionary journey, and he is meeting with the Ephesian elders um, to give them a word of encouragement. He does, he's, he's on his way to Jerusalem. He doesn't even stop in Ephesus. He has them meet them in Miletus. Uh, so he comes there, and in Acts chapter 20, starting in verse 28, he's encouraging them. He says, Pay careful attention to yourselves as elders 
and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God which he obtained with his own blood. So he's warning them. It's like, pay attention. You've got to pay attention. You are the elders. You are the shepherds. You are the ones who are caring for the flock of God that he has entrusted to you. Verse 29, I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be alert, remembering that for three years I did not cease night or day to admonish everyone with tears. And now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and to give you an inheritance among all those who are sanctified. So it's like, watch out. Why? Because wolves are going to come and they're going to want to eat the sheep. And not only that, you're going to have some wolves that are in sheep's clothing among yourselves. They're going to try to build a following for themselves. They're going to try to draw away people. So Paul's warning them there of false converts. Again, 2 Corinthians 11. Verses 1 through 6. And a couple other passages in 2 This is Paul again defending himself to the Corinthian church. 2 Corinthians 11. Where he says, I wish you would bear with me in a little foolishness. Do bear with me. I feel a divine jealousy for you, for I betrothed you to one husband to present you as a pure virgin to Christ. But I'm afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, your thoughts will be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. Again, I'm warning you, but you, you know, I fear that you may turn away. For if someone comes and proclaims another Jesus than the one we proclaim, sounds like Galatians, or if you receive a different spirit from the one you received, or if you accept a different gospel from the one you accepted, you put up with it readily enough. So that's a rebuke. I consider that I am not in the least inferior to these super apostles. That's the false brothers coming in in Corinth. Even if I am unskilled in speaking, he's, he's being rhetorical here, I am not so in knowledge. Indeed, in every way we have made this plain to you in all things. Now drop down to verse 12. And what, do, uh, and what I do, I will continue to do in order to undermine the claim of those who would like to claim that in their boasted mission they work the same terms as we do. For such men are false apostles, deceitful workmen, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. And no wonder, for even Satan judge, uh, disguises himself as an angel of light. So it is no surprise if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness." Their end will, will correspond to their deeds. So Paul here again saying, look, false brothers are going to come in, and they're not going to come in saying, hey, I'm preaching a false gospel. Don't believe in Jesus. Go on and do whatever you... No, no, they come in disguised. They're, sheeps, they're wolves in sheep's clothing. Why? Because even Satan himself appears as, a, as an angel of light to deceive. That's how you deceive. If you're close to the truth, it's very easy to deceive. Uh, one more passage, Second Peter chapter 2. 2 Peter chapter 2. But false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing upon themselves swift destruction. And many will follow their sensuality, and because of them the way of truth will be blasphemed, and in their greed they will exploit you with false words. Their condemnation from long ago is not idle, 
and their destruction is not asleep. Again, false teaching will come in. It will come in sneakily, if that's a word. It'll come in secretly. It'll come in um, not disguise, not not boldly, but often secretly through the back door. And these, uh, you can go back to Galatians too. And these false brothers here, as Paul says, they snuck in. To sp- so it's almost like they're doing espionage and 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 um, what's the other word? Reconnaissance. They're looking at the church and they're spying out the liberty that we have in Christ. Now, in this context, the the liberty he's referring to is is to circumcision, and and really circumcision in itself is like a word that encompasses uh, all the other Jewish legal uh, rituals. But the point is is that false teachers are always always seeking to enslave people. These guys, they want to enslave the church by bringing them into submission to circumcision in the Jewish law. But false teachers always want to come in and enslave you to something. That is one hallmark of a false teacher. They're going to give you something that is extra-biblical, something that sounds good, something that may even please or tickle your ear, and then they're going to enslave you by it. They're going to enslave you to it by essentially making it a yoke you have to carry. If I had time, I would go through you know, some examples, but uh, maybe just a couple. Think of, um, well, think of like a prosperity gospel, or, or, or you know, we, when we talked about this before, we talked about uh, prosperity gospel, personal gospel, political gospel. All those add something to the gospel. All those distort the true gospel. And, and in a sense, then what they do is they enslave you to man-made rules. Uh, think of the political gospel. Uh, if if your, your goal is to achieve certain political outcomes, then you have to sort of preach in such a way that, that makes the people think that you have to vote in a certain way. Right? If they say, you're, you're not a Christian if you vote X, okay? You're not a Christian if you vote this, or, or the prosperity gospel. If, if, you don't, you know, if you're not seeing victory in your life, it's because you do not have enough faith, or other things they can sort of enslave you to. False teachers are always seeking to enslave you to their own sort of particular brand of things. But the freedom that we have in Christ here is freedom from the law, the Mosaic law. Uh, in the sense that it is no longer condemns us. The law in Christ, the law no longer condemns you. Outside of Christ, the law condemns you. The law condemns you as a lawbreaker. The law condemns you as a sinner. The law condemns you as, a, as one under the wrath of God. But in Christ, you are free from that. You are free from the condemnation of the law. You are free from the power of the law. No longer has power to condemn you any longer. And you are dead to the law. This is what um, Paul says in Romans 7. Uh, John 8.32, if the Son sets you free, you are free indeed. Uh, as we'll see, uh, Lord willing, when we get to it, Galatians chapter 5, uh, the key verse in this book, chapter 5, uh, verse 1, for freedom, I'm not going to do the William Wallace again, don't worry. For freedom, Christ has set you free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. You are free in Christ. Do not submit to man-made rules. Do not submit to false gospels. Do not submit to additions to the gospel. When we add works to the gospel, no matter how good they are, right? There could be many good things you could say that Christians ought to do. But when you start adding them to the gospel, then you start to enslave Christians to those rules. So if Jesus plus nothing equals everything... As I've been saying, Jesus plus anything equals what? Nothing. 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 
Now we're on page two. That's my time? Okay. Don't worry. I'm, I'm building up speed. I'm kind of, I'm, I'm, on the, I'm over the crest. I'm moving downhill now. We'll pick up speed, right? That's how that goes. Just put it in neutral and just let it roll downhill. The gospel sets us free. Anything else but the gospel is a yoke of slavery that we should reject. Um, again, look at Galatians chapter 4. Uh, some verses there. Verse 3 in Galatians 4. In the same way, uh, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. He's talking about uh, uh, as a Jew. Uh, go down to verse 9. But now that you have come to know God, or rather to be known by God, how can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world whose slaves you want to become once more? Verse 10, you observe days and months and seasons and years. That's Jewish law, Jewish ritual. Verse 25, uh, he's good. this is an allegory that Paul uses, so um, it's, we'll, we'll explain it more when we get to it, but He's, he, he talks about the Old Covenant and the New Covenant, and he's like, the Old Covenant is like Mount H- is Hagar, the, the slave woman. And she says, he says that's Mount Sinai, uh, where the law was given. She corresponds to the present Jerusalem, for she is in slavery with her children. So, I mean, Paul is referring to the Jewish law as a yoke of slavery, as a yoke of slavery. And he's like, look, you, you, are, you do not need to be yoked to that anymore. And that's kind of what Christ says in, in, chapter, in Matthew uh, 11, 28-29, in that range, where he says, you know, uh, I, you know, all who are weary and heavy laden, come unto me and I will give you rest. Why are they weary and heavy laden? Because they are under the yoke of the law. They are under what the Pharisees have been giving them and feeding them, which is you have to observe the law in order to obtain righteousness. And then that puts you in a constant state of panic. How have, have I done enough? Have I observed enough? Because the Pharisees were like the, the paragons of virtue. And Jesus says, your righteousness needs to exceed that even of the Pharisees. And then he says, put on my yoke, which is easy. My burden is light. In other words, that, that the, the easy burden is the fact that we no longer have to live in order to be made righteous before God. We, we live out of the righteousness that Christ has given to us by faith. That's the easy burden, the, 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 the burden now of loving your, your neighbor, the burden of loving one another in the church, the burden of loving God, knowing that Christ has paid the penalty, and we don't have to do these things to earn righteousness. Now, verse 5, note how Paul responds to these false brothers. He's like, look, we didn't yield an inch. We did not yield an inch. They came and they tried to, to rob us of our freedom, and we didn't yield to them for a moment. As I said, there are many things we can agree to disagree on. Um, song, you know, songs and how, what kind of songs you sing in church. Um, you know, other things we can, you know, baptism issues. All other things that are important, but in a sense secondary to the, to the core of the gospel. We can agree to disagree on uh, with them, but not the gospel. When the gospel is under, under attack, we stand firm. We do not yield an inch. That's why Paul, again, Galatians 5.1, stand firm and do not submit to a yoke of slavery. Because when you take on that yoke of slavery, you're basically emptying the gospel of all of its saving power. Legalism is appealing to our flesh because 
If we have a list of, it, put it this way, I mean, I, I've often said this, we are hardwired for works. And if, and if we start adding works to the gospel, that kind of feeds our flesh because we like little checklists. Okay, I've done this, I've done this, I've done this, and then this. I'm a good Christian, right? That's not how it works. That's not how it works. It gives us grounds for boasting, but it is death to our souls. Now, finally, verses 6 through 10, fellowship in the gospel. Um, verses 6, and from those who seem to be influential, what they were makes no difference to me. God shows no partiality. Those, I say, who seemed influential added nothing to me. On the contrary, when they saw that I had been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been entrusted with the gospel to the circumcised, for he who worked through Peter for his apostolic ministry to the circumcised worked also through me for mine to the Gentiles. And when James and Cephas, that's Peter, and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that was given to me, they gave the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and me, that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. Only they asked us to remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do. So despite what the false brothers were doing in trying to spy out and, and, and enslave the people in, in Galatia, um, uh, the, here we find out that the Jerusalem Three, right, Peter, James, and John, they added nothing to Paul's gospel. There was nothing to Paul's gospel they found wrong or errant. Paul's gospel is no different than the gospel that the three preached, and there was nothing. There was no need to add anything to it. They were just like, that's what you're preaching. That's what we preach. Amen. Let's let's fellowship together. Let's work together in common cause. As I said before, the gospel transcends all human traditions, all man-made rituals. It is not a Jewish thing. It is not a Gentile thing. It is a Jesus thing. And what the three here, when Paul says they, they, they recognized my gospel, it's not like they, like they were giving their blessing, like, yes, son, you are preaching the right gospel. <laughs> You know, you can go forth with our blessing. No, they recognized the truth of what Paul was preaching. They recognized the work of God in Paul's life, that God had called Paul to preach to the Gentiles just as much as God had called Peter, James, and John to preach to the Jews. It is the very same gospel that was entrusted. That, that's a very key word there. Given to them as a trust to to. to, to uh, Use wisely. The very same gospel was entrusted to Paul as was entrusted to Peter, James, and John. Peter's calling, the three, they were, they were called to labor in Jerusalem, to, to preach the gospel to the Jews in Jerusalem and the surrounding area. Paul's calling, of course, was to go beyond that, to take the gospel to the outer reaches of the world, to take it to the Gentiles. It's the same message different ministry focuses, okay? Same message, same gospel message, same Christ that they're proclaiming, same power of the Spirit that is working in them, all to the glory of the same Father in heaven. And Paul's point in telling this to the Galatians is that Paul is no less an apostle than Peter, James, and John, and Paul's gospel is no different. Therefore, the, the payoff is, do not listen to the troublers. Do not listen to those who are telling you things other than what I've told you. And this is seen in the fact that the Jerusalem Three here extend the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas. You know, and it's not just, you know, I mean, that's special, right? That's like, 
you know, a recognition there. We are fellowshipping in the same ministry, and it's, it's a way of recognizing fellowshipping with one another. We are, we are um, all in the same team, is kind of what he's saying here. So Paul has not run in vain. His ministry was given to him by God, and his co- uh, by God's calling and grace, and it was confirmed and recognized by the Jerusalem Three. And again, the last verse there, the only thing that they were stressed about was making sure that they remember the poor. And that's, you know, and if we say that this is Paul's second trip to Jerusalem, that's exactly why he was there. He was there bringing famine relief to the Jews in Jerusalem. And he says, that's the very thing I was eager to do. So as we close here, um, this is a good quote I pulled from a commentary by Philip Graham Riken on Galatians. He says, Here, Paul knew how precious spiritual freedom is. He knew the price Jesus paid on the cross to gain it. He also knew how easy it is to squander that freedom and return to spiritual bondage. And he's right. The freedom that we have in the gospel is so important, it's so urgent that we we uphold it because of the price that Christ paid for it. If we dilute the gospel in any way, if we pervert it, if we distort it, we are, in a sense, then distorting the sacrifice of Christ that made the gospel necessary and possible in the first place. And it is easy for us to squander freedom. Again, we are hardwired for works. We're hardwired to sort of, I want to do something. I need to earn this. i got to work for it. Gospel freedom must be defended vigorously because the world, the flesh, and the devil all seek to enslave us. And Christ has set us free, and we are free indeed. We are free in that Christ, that in Christ we no longer have to work to earn our salvation. It has been done by Christ, and all we have to do is just receive it with the empty hand of faith alone. It's really the, the, the question between do, which is the law, and done, which is the gospel. The, Galatia, the, the false brothers, they want to add do to the gospel. <laughs> you can't add do to done. Okay, if you add do to done, you get doo-doo. Okay? You, you can't add do to done. It's done. The gospel means done. Now, from that power, of course, we do. We work. But it, is in the, it, it flows out of the gospel. It flows out of our salvation. It flows out in love toward one another. That's the, main, the, you know, the, the second great commandment, which is like unto the first, to love God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. So I'll stop there. Uh, next time, uh, I'm not sure how far we're going to get. I'm debating whether to go up to verse 14 or to verse 16.